0: From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission.
1: Hello, my name is Robert Wilson. I'm with the Tennessee Diversity Consortium. Welcome to Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be Anti Racist, filmed in the Grand Reading Room of the Nashville Public Library. I'm joined by my colleagues and friends, Kendrick Robertson, with the, uh, with Bristone, he's a part of Bristone's uh, Diversity and Inclusion Group, and Kelly Nowers with um, Awake Nashville. Um, so I'll let Kendrick and Kelly introduce yourselves.
0: I'm Kelly Nowers, I am Executive Director at Awake Tennessee, which uh, stands for Advocates for Women and Kids Equality. We um, advocate for the advancement of women and kids in Tennessee through education and policy change.
2: Great, so I'm Kendrick Robinson, and I'm with Bridgestone. Uh, I provide oversight for the employer resource groups in an effort to advance Bridgestone's uh, diversity and inclusion strategy.
1: Thanks. Um, So where our focus today is on failure, which is chapter 16 um, in Kendi's book. Uh, And so I wanted to engage us a little bit about uh, what I thought was a really powerful uh, chapter as I read through what was really a really powerful book in general. Um, Just to start, you know, about reactions, uh, he talks a lot about the impact that racism has on societies, um, on individuals in the society. Oftentimes we think about racism as how it it affects individuals who might be um, on the receiving end of racist policies or racist institutions, but um, I think he really takes a different look at it as far as as how it impacts everyone in society. So I'll just kind of open it up to, to you, Kendrick, and Kelly, What's your reaction to that? You know, how do you, you know, what, what did you think as you read that portion of that, that part about racism and how it impacts individuals? Go ahead, country go ahead.
2: So okay. I, so there's a lot to unpack there. And I mean, he makes a lot of assertions about racism, but I think when he's saying that we've, um, we, we basically repeat ideologies, they're failed ideologies and you know, it doesn't, and we we continue to practice those failed ideologies, hoping for something new. And so what happens is the impact builds over time uh, with everyone. It's affecting all the stakeholders, the groups who maybe are being marginalized or disenfranchised, and even those folks, again, who say, well, you know, I'm not racist, Uh, you know, I'm for women, I'm for equity, but when you don't, you know, it's a, again, he's just like, it's really just not enough to, he reinforces that idea of like, it's not enough to just be, I'm not racist, mm-hmm. but are you anti-racist? Right. So right. it really does affect everyone because it affects our society, our interactions mm-hmm. with one another. And, you know, it, it creates these barriers and challenges that kind of like we never overcome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Kelly, what do you, th- what do you think about it?
0: Yeah, I just, I think it's so important. Um, to look at the way racism affects every aspect of the individual, not just, um, you know, in social interactions or the way you might typically initially think about it, but, uh, healthcare, you Mm -hmm. know, access to resources. If we're talking about, um, startups and business, Mm -hmm. just having the initial funding to start, you know, um, to spur on innovation. I think it's, you look at every aspect of an individual's life, but also, What's important and what, you know, he brought up throughout the book is the way that, you know, white supremacy culture affects white people right, right. And, and the people that right. are in those positions of power, whether it be, if, whether we be talking about race or sex or gender, um, because it's holding those people to this standard that has been created a long time ago by very specific people. And it, you know, it, it, um, I think it creates a barrier to authenticity for everyone, right? And like freedom for every person, even um, even people in power and positions of power and whatever, you know, aspect you're talking about that.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot more, I think, conversation about racism as, you know, you've seen some you know, hashtags around racism as a pandemic, as a way of describing it, right? And then how it has such far reaching effects on society and you know, impacts how people interact with one another. I also thought about it, you know, t- t- just to add to it, I thought about it a little bit as, um, you know, we know that when people interact and when people collaborate, that it creates stronger results, you know, along those collaborations. And if there are barriers, like you kind of said, Kelly, if there are barriers that we're putting up that are artificial barriers, um, then that can have an impact, you know, a huge impact on, you know, value creation and solving problems across, you know, different segments of society. So I think in that respect, I think he's kind of spot on when he talks about racism in this way. There were a couple of um, a couple of things he's, he said that really struck me that were different ways of perhaps thinking about topics and ideas that we've kind of known for a long time. So I want to dig into both of these. It's how he defines activism as changing policy versus changing minds. Because, you know, the work that we do within TDC and I know the work that both of your organizations are, are trying to do, um, is a lot about education and about educating people. And there's this idea that if we just educate people, then that will solve it. And that's something that I've kind of ascribed to for a long part of my career. He talks about you know, activism and you know, are you trying to actively dismantle some of these institutions? And if you're not doing that, then you know, constantly preaching to people you know changing minds is not gonna be very helpful. What is your reaction to that one? I really, that one is one, because it creates for me a little bit of chicken and egg scenario. Because how do you get people to buy into some of the activism if you haven't done the education in the beginning? So what's any of your reaction to that? Because that was a tough one for me to, to get through. So I,
2: that question, that's, that's interesting because I actually, you know, as a student of political science, I think that politics is about you know, gaining power mm-hmm. and how you use that for influence. And so I, that kind of resonates you know, with the policy change, activism you know if you think about it um, i'm from alabama native alabama native and so for me i thought back to like the the 1955 montgomery Mm -hmm. bus boycott so that was activism and they were seeking you know equity within the public transit system so they weren't really just trying to change the minds of uh, the transit authority or uh, the citizens of uh, alabama they were seeking uh, equity within that space of public transportation. And the way they did that is with the boycott. And so they inflicted economic hardship Right. right. To bring about that policy change. Right. right. So it wasn't really just trying to change the minds of the good, well-intentioned people of Montgomery, Alabama. They had to um, boycott, you know, act, be, engage in act- activism to bring about this policy change. So I, that, that kind of resonates with me because the education piece we believe is important, but also I think that Kendi kind of questions that we go back to those um, practices that have not really worked. Yeah. they haven't produced the desired outcomes. Yeah, do you think, Kelly? Yeah,
0: I think that was one of my biggest takeaways as well as the way that Kendi reframed a lot of these right, things, right. especially being in the space um, and you know the way that maybe we see corporations or organizations immediately. Uh, like the solutions that are kind of there immediately, and education is obviously one of them. And I didn't read it as, um, you know, yes and no, like education doesn't do anything, but more of prioritizing energy and um, like within this movement and that focusing on policy change. um, You know, I guess just putting into the context of we see leaders today that um, are upholding and perpetuating racist policy and then saying that they're not racist. So there's like this, they're like, okay, something isn't aligning or like something's not matching up. So like, what is a thing that will really, um, change lived experience? And I think that's what he's pointing to is like the power, exactly what you said, like the power construct and like the power that's involved in that. And then what will change that is policy and, and acting on that or, you know protesting demonstrating towards that yeah. you know i've
1: actually started to move away somewhat from you know when someone says something or does something oftentimes we're quick to label them <clears throat> as racist but you know that if you think of this as kind of a a long-term centuries-old battle if you will because what you said kelly is exactly right people will do something that's clearly racist and it's in t- and how it's how it's perceived or how or the outcomes it produces but then they'll say but i'm not racist and then you're kind of stuck with, okay, are you or are you not? And it's, it's a great defense, I think. So what I've started to do more of is calling out the action and not really worrying about the person, because I don't know that I really care whether the person's racist. I think that's for them and their family and their loved ones to determine. But if the policy or the action itself is racist, I think that is difficult to escape from, right? And then maybe we can have that debate about whether that policy is racist, but then we can look at those actions and outcomes it's a lot it's easier to be fact-based, but when, you, when you're talking about a specific person, it's like you have to make this legal case, right? Well, five years ago you said this, and then you said this, and it's like, you know what I mean? And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just reaching a point where I'm okay with letting everybody else figure that out, but calling out the action, because that's ultimately the thing that's gonna you know, affect people. I don't know if you have any reaction to that, but that's what I thought of when you mentioned that, Kelly. <clears throat> yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I wanna go deeper to where you went. And I love you know your background, you know, growing up in Alabama, growing up in that, you know, definitely in that space. My father, you know, was was grew up in Birmingham. So he gives me some first-hand accounts uh, from his experience as, as growing up in that during that time frame. Um, he says he talks about uh, demonstrations versus protests. And that was another one that really struck me towards the end of the chapter. So one of my questions was this year. You know there was a lot of unrest I'm going, to, I'm going to call it an arrest to start um and i think the prevailing uh, nomenclature we've used is that those were protests um, but kidney goes really specifically in saying you know if you've got a sign and you're walking around that's a demonstration and that the point there is to you know demonstrate for people who may not be aware you know what the dynamics of some of these challenges really are and so it's a really you know I, he really describes uh, demonstrations in a way that makes them sound a lot more performative than perhaps we really think about demonstrations, right? I think, I think we've been, I think, demonstrations, especially the courage it takes to get out there and say, you know, I'm going to take a stand. I think most of us have found that as a courageous act for people. Um, but he really labels those as demonstrations and protests are kind of what we what we grew up learning about, and you know, in Montgomery and Selma and places like that, and in, in, in Atlanta and Birmingham. Um, Talk about that, talk about that. And, and the question I have, in addition to just what's your reaction, is the protests themselves were so difficult for people um, who maybe had not engaged in this in, in a way. So a lot of people who were kind of sitting on the sidelines were saying, oh, these protests, why are they protesting? What are they protesting about? Is this really, and when you consider that, you know, prote- if you could think of protests as performative, the easy action, and dem- I mean, I'm sorry, it was demonstrations as the easy action and protest really being the the real work to move the needle that kind of scares me in some way because you know if we as a society are afraid of demonstrations how do we ever make the leap to actual protest you know what do you, what do you just start with you Kelly what do you think about
0: that yeah um, so kind of go- going back to the first thing that you talked about I uh, really appreciated that just clarification of, yeah, of language too, yeah. I think language <laughs> is really important I think a lot of people reading this book um, hopefully these are not hopefully, but they're reading this to learn Mm -hmm. and to get involved and to understand better. So I think that clarification was really helpful. Um, Performance is like exactly what I what came to my mind, thinking about the difference in those two, Um, because it is easy to get swept up in maybe for some people Mm -hmm. is a seasonal Mm -hmm. thing. Right. That is not the case for everyone. But to be let's go to this Mm -hmm. protest. Um, let's talk about these things, and then that for for that energy to die down right. um, and that does not change that's not transformative and um, I think that needs to be really clear and maybe called out mm-hmm. for some people um, and then yeah, thinking about kind of long term like if there's already backlash to these demonstrations right, yeah, right, 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 right. you know like then then what but has there ever been a clear path to protest, right? Like there's always um, pushback and struggle, which which is why it's harder. So I think maybe the question we need to think about, or like I, I am thinking about is like, is this not, is this the right time or how do we do it? But like, who are the leaders? Mm-hmm. Who are we following? Kind of like the strategy, like he talks mm-hmm. about strategy a lot in the book um, and changing those concepts and ideologies so that when we do come up against pushback or opposition, that we are like equipped with the right, I don't know right, but like equipped to know how to respond and then keep going even through that. So um, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's just kind of like how, how I'm thinking about it yeah, right now, yeah. yeah. What do
1: you think Kendrick?
2: Yeah, so I, I read that uh, over and over, you know, even making that distinction between uh, the demonstrations and the protest, and just really focusing on his exact language, right? But I think that it, you know his assertion is that we we conflate the two with our own peril, right? Because we use them interchangeably. But if you look at his language, what he's saying is demonstrations. He and I his specific language is that, you know, it's where you're mobilizing people uh, momentarily to publicize a problem, but the protest. And so I think about that, that's like a a moment, right? And so the protest is more like a movement because you're organizing people for a prolonged campaign that's gonna affect policy change. So to me, that makes me think of like our civil rights movement, and it wasn't a civil rights moment, right? So it's a movement, and it was the prolonged campaign that culminated in 1964, 1965, voting rights and the civil rights legislation. So you'd had, you needed demonstrations to bring about the inequity in society. But so you needed it like twofold. We needed demonstrations, but then we also needed to activate protests, you know, for the prolonged campaign to bring about the civil rights movement and not a civil rights moment.
1: Mm. Yeah. So where do you think, you know, thinking about 2020 and kind of what we've gone through? I mean, do you see a moment or are you sensing a movement? I mean, the jury's still out. There's a
2: lot of debate about that right now. I'm really hoping that it, I'm, I have hopes that it's a movement. Uh, I think that, you know, with the social and racial unrest of 2020, you know, people responded. It got a lot of attention and there have been a lot of demonstrations. And but are we really moving towards a movement hope where it will affect change for the betterment of society? I hope so but I think the jury's still out on it because we're still in 2020 Uh, and then you know all this stuff is taking place in the middle of a pandemic so it's um the jury's still out for me I'm hopeful uh, so but I'm a natural optimist so you know
1: (laughs) what about you Kelly are you sensing a a moment or a movement
0: yeah I think I think we're seeing both right I think we're seeing both of those things happening um I, so, so he talks about the benefits of demonstration too. So they're not all performative, like there's there's positive things coming out of those. And I think how I look at 2020 is that a movement has been happening, right? Beyond, mm. you know, before 2020, there has been a movement and that maybe it's the demonstrating, um, you know, f- for the positive and negative that might come out of that, it's the demonstrating that is adding to the movement that will then like continue to create change, and I'm an optimist too. <laughs> so this is like my hopeful that you know more people that are really committed and learning and doing the work um, are giving money to Black-led organizations, um, are are kind of with it beyond just the protester too, um, and are are just kind of like joining the the movement of it. So. I guess I'm seeing both are happening and hopefully, um, like into 2021, it will just continue growing. Yeah. yeah.
1: I want to follow up. I Maybe mean, last question on something that you said I thought was really interesting. You talked about who are the leaders. It's really interesting because, um, you know, even within my own firm and activities, we kind of asked that question as well, like who are the leaders and what I've kind of put back, to people as, you know, we're it, you know, I don't know what you're looking for, but I think people were so accustomed to, you know, the names that we grew up hearing about during the civil rights movement in particular, that there was a group of people, you know, led by, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others, but there was a group of people that we grew up learning about, and now it doesn't feel like there are those names that you can kind of hang your hat on in the same way. Things seem more decentralized. What is your reaction to that? You know, how do you, how do you see this how do you see the role of uh, of specific leaders, or are we all just going to have to, you know, pull together and work through that? And if uh, if leaders emerge then great, if not, then we just keep you know pushing ahead. What, what's your reaction to that? So I think that
2: you know w- w- the names that we could really hang our hats on, they're all leaving. They're you know they're transitioning, <laughs> leaving this world. So you know John Lewis kind of comes to mind and. I think he, what he does is he challenges everyone to engage in good trouble. So I think that it becomes incumbent upon everybody to become that John Lewis or that Dr. King. You know, so I think there's a responsibility for just your average, everyday person to become that activist in fighting racism. be everyone has a responsibility to be anti-racist so how how does that look it might look different for different folks but we all have a responsibility and so we can't really just look to our true icons where oh well this he's reminiscent of dr king that we have to find our own dr king or john lewis within maybe and you know you know activate that and you know be the change we want to see
1: yeah in some ways i almost think we have the benefit of you know, having grown up, hearing about, and it, you know, it hasn't been that long since the Rosa Parks' of the world and those people. And our parents, you know, so depending on how old your parents are, some of them get really close proximity with the, you know, the legends of that period, it really, probably all of our parents have because everybody, fortunately, wasn't that assassinated. I mean, those men and women went on and other things that they did, and so our parents had interaction with them. So in some ways, I almost think, because we're so close to that period, we do kind of have an extra responsibility to be able to pick it up and go, perhaps more than the generations that'll come after us, where those people will really be people that you just read about in the book. You know what I mean? We've got a lot more closeness to them through our own experiences and our parents' experiences, but I don't know if you wanna add to that or answer that question yeah. about the leaders.
0: Yeah, I think that that what we're seeing there with like what you've just said is probably a product of accessibility. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we're like, seeing movements in other countries and other cities across the world, what they're doing, their strategies. We're talking to people. It's like we have this connection that we didn't have when Dr. King was leading and, you know, and Rosa Parks. So um, I think that's a, you know, it's a product of that in a sense. And I think it's a good thing because we can all, you know, we're all empowered to be our own activists and leaders. And I think that is a really positive thing. On the other hand, I think it's really important for me to know who the the leaders by their name. So Mm. like when we're talking, if we throw out like intersectionality or race, you know, like these things that maybe become buzzwords, like we need to know who are the leaders behind that and say their name. A lot of times they're black women Mm. and more black women's names need to be spoken, I think. Um, So I guess I see it in both ways, like not letting the um, not not getting so diluted that we lose um, recognition of leaders, but also making sure we're empowered and we're empowering others to like speak up and learn and, and, and lead when that is necessary, if that makes sense for them.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to our discussion today. If you'd like more information, um, if you want to check out more episodes, you can go to www.justconversations.org. Just
0: Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive Producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara gunn and Bob Ferrissey. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit JustConversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at JustConversate, on Instagram at JustConversaciones, or on Facebook at JustConversate.